0: welcome to the prolific teaching ministry of pastor immanuel Irin, lead pastor of celebration church international it is his vision to partner with you for your progress and joy in the faith ready set grow hallelujah thank you jesus turn your bibles very quickly 2nd peter chapter 1 verse 12. 2nd peter chapter 1 verse 12. It says, and I read, it says, "For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth." Second Peter, 1.12, Birmingham read together, one, two go. Hallelujah. You see, in the past few days, I've had a very crazy schedule, and I mean, I literally landed on Sunday morning, freshened up a little, and came straight to preach twice, and on Wednesday night, I preached at a church. Immediately, I was done, dashed down to the airport, flew to Abuja, and the next morning, preached. The next morning, 4 a.m., I entered the plane and I landed here just in the nick of time to make it on time for this meeting. Now, I said all of that to say this. No matter how regularly you've flown an airplane, the hostesses are mandated to go through all the safety precautions to let you know the things that you need to know. And all they're doing might bore you. But they will do it anyway. They will tell you where your life jacket is. They will show you where all the emergency exits are. They will show you where the oxygen mask is. And it's going to bore you. But they must do it because they know something. That when the information that must be shared can be the difference between life and death, you are not permitted to assume that people already know. Come on, are you listening to me? You're not permitted to assume. Because it's a matter of life and death. Even if it's a transit flight, as long as you're about to take off, they will do it again. Because, you know, every time i start starting a camp meeting, I must, 9.9 times out of 10 times, share the gospel. It doesn't matter if all the faces are familiar. By the way, the gospel should be preached to sinners and taught to believers. Do you understand what I'm saying? So there is an elementary knowledge sufficient to get you saved. But then you have to now advance that knowledge to understand it and be grounded in it. So Paul is telling people who already believe, he says, I'm praying that the eyes of your understanding will be flooded with light. To know the hope of his calling. Even if they're already saved. So there's still a lot to learn. And not just for you, but so that you can do the work of an evangelist. And because, unlike hostesses, what we are dealing with is not just life or death. It is eternal life or eternal death. Therefore, our emphasis and repetition should even be more frequent. Come on, are you with me? More frequent. Because we live in a generation... That is only intrigued by new information. But the Bible is letting you know that preaching is not just for new information. It is for doctrinal emphasis. There is something called doctrinal emphasis. That even if you already know it and you are established in the present truth, yet my not repeating it will be negligence. Those of you who study law, you know what negligence is. You know, you know that by your actions or inactions, when you should have been taking some responsible steps, someone can be injured by it. And that's punishable by law. If you're parking on a slope and you did not use your leg brake, and for some reason your car just free falls and hits someone, that's negligence. Because you could have taken extra precautions. Every man of God must take extra precaution in re-emphasizing even the things he thinks people already know. And this is why we start every camp meeting, or at least in every camp meeting, you must hear the gospel. How much does the Bible emphasize grace? You know, the reason that's important is because there is a rule in elementary Bible theology that to know how much premium God places on any subject, just see how many times the writers speak on it. After all, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, every truth shall be what? So even if one utterance is enough, But the general rule in Bible theology is if it is important enough, it will be spoken of enough. So, there are many things you can learn from the Bible. But when it comes to the central theme, the aims and objectives of the Bible, salvation is most most emphasized. Isn't that true? In fact, the Bible is a book about salvation. What God did to save mankind. And just by seeing the kind of premium and emphasis placed on the message of grace, you can understand how important it is and therefore why we need to repeat it as often as possible. I have so much to share with you, but for time's sake. Number one, our salvation is called grace. Listen, in English language, there is something called synonyms. Words that can be used instead of some other words and will convey the same meaning. I'm telling you, our salvation is called grace. And so the Bible tells us in First Peter chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, it says, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. Who prophesied of the grace that was to come to you? Oh, my God. So, he literally uses grace in place of salvation. He could have said, who prophesied of the salvation that was to come to you? But instead, he said, of the grace. I mean, so, that's how significant grace is. I mean, it's literally synonymous to salvation. Amen, somebody. And not just that. Our message, our gospel is called grace. So our salvation is called grace. If you've received salvation, you've received the grace of God. Isn't that true? Our salvation is grace. Our message is grace. John chapter 1 verse 17, you know this one. For the law was given by Moses, but what? Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace. Grace came by Jesus Christ. Our Savior is full of grace. 1 John chapter 1 verse 14b. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace. Full of grace and truth. not just that so our salvation as prophesied is grace our savior is full of grace his message his offering is grace and not just that the bible says in hebrews 2:9 that by the grace of god he should taste death for all men oh my god by the grace of God he should taste death so it looks like every step of the salvific journey is synonymous to grace in fact i told you my note is more extended but we have we don't have the time so his throne is called the throne of grace he's called the god of all grace even in discipleship we are to commend people to God and the word of his grace his word is called the word of his grace our salvation is grace it's all grace and so it's not hard to see the emphasis is you have to take a lot of emph- a lot of effort to miss it he's trying to tell you it's all grace if you believe that say it's all grace, it's all grace. say thank you lord for your grace So we are told to continue in grace. We are told to abound in grace. We are told to be strong in His grace. We are told to grow in grace. It's all grace. And this is one that I actually really like. Are you aware that in the kingdom, our hello and our bye is grace? Oh, I'm serious. So you see, in every culture, there's a way that people say hello. So... If you are at the airport or anywhere and you just see people, hey, guy, how far? You you know, where do you think they are from? (laughs) But if you hear two people talking and you say, what Guam? Or something like that. (laughs) You say they are from where? So because every culture has how they greet. So in the Old Testament, two Hebrew men, two Jewish men will say shalom. But at the advent of Christ in the New Testament, that communication changed. And so instead of saying hello, you can say grace to you. Gra- oh my God. Grace is so important, it's how we greet. And instead of saying bye, you could say the grace of God be with you. Listen, Paul started the book of Ephesians this way and ended it this way. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the will of God, to you Gentiles. You know, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul and apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God, the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then how does he end the book in chapter 6, verse 24? Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Grace is our hello. Grace is our bye. Grace is the summation of everything we represent. Amen, somebody. Oh, come on. Are you in church tonight? That's our emphasis. It's not an anecdote. It's It's not an addendum. I meant addendum. It's not an addendum. This is is what we preach. And then I want to answer a question that some people ask. Does grace, the frequent preaching of it, the emphasis of it, does it make light of sin? Does it make light of sin? Some of you already know the answer but at least listen so that you can explain it if anyone should ever ask you. Are you ready for this? Now, when you see the cross, the cross has two powerful messages. The cross represents two powerful truths. When you see the cross, you don't just see the love of God you see the gravity of sin. That's what you see. You don't just see the love of God. You see the severity of God against sin. That's what it is. The severity of God against sin. Just in case you don't understand, God Let men crush his own son for their sins. Oh my God. Let me take that again. I said, God, let men crush his own son. It must have been the most difficult thing, and excuse that expression because using difficulty with God seems like an oxymoron. But if there is any such thing, it has to be the most difficult thing God ever did. Having to look away. Knowing that at any point in time, Jesus could call and legions of angels. What am I saying? One is enough. He will wipe them all. You know, and the angels must have been so confused because you see, the Bible says that to principalities and powers we may make known. So at least God knows this is part of the plan. The angels were probably lost, confused. Like, you slap our master. And they're like, what, what is going on? And their hand is on their shit like this. Like, God, you don't have to say go, just signal. Move your left eyeball. <laughs> and and they take Jesus, they strip him of all his clothing, they begin to beat him, and they are mocking, slapping, and saying, you know, they, they put a blindfold on him, slap and say, Who prophesied, prophesy? Who slapped you? Prophesy. They spat on him. Listen, apart from that being disgusting, in that culture, that was the most disrespectful thing you could do to anybody. To spit on them. You know, they do all those things. And then finally, they nail him on a cross. Listen, listen, If it was a quick one, it's a different thing. If if they had a gun and they just shot at him, better. But to go through all that process. And then the Bible tells us, Jesus on the cross cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi! My God, my God! Why have you forsaken me? Listen, you don't know how strange this was. You don't know how strange... Listen, the thing that everybody knew this Jesus about was his intimacy with God. Intimacy. I mean, he made religious people repent. They saw him pray and they said, teach us to pray. We we don't know how to pray. Because he spoke like someone who was close to God. Always called God Father. And that's something you... So just days ago... Philip is asking us, show us this father you always talk about. And he sufficed to us and he says, what? Have I been so long with you and you don't know me, Philip? Don't you know that I am in the father and the father is in me? So he always demonstrated and advertised this inseparable union with the father. Come on, are you with me? Yes, he says, everything I see the father do, I do. I and the father are one. This was his language and communication Throughout the incarnation. And now for the first time. Throughout the Bible. This is the only time he will call God God. He always called him father. He says my God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? I'll tell you why. He who knew no sin was made to be seen for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you believe that? Are you glad about that? I take it again. It says, he that knew no sin was made to be seen for us that we might become. Oh, my God. Has anyone become in this place? Hey, thank you, Lord. That we might become the righteousness of God. That right there is the gospel. That right there is the gospel. He crushed his own son for us. What's the rationale behind that? Why would he look away from his son? When Jesus was praying before he went to the cross, he said something life-changing. If you haven't seen this, this is going to change your life and blow your mind away. Look at John chapter 17, verse 23b. Because you think it is almost abominable that God will allow all of this happen to his son. Why would he do this? Why did he look away? Well, the Bible tells us why. Oh my God, we have to read this together. I want you to read the second part of it and that the world may know. Are you ready? I want you to read it as loud as you can. And if it blesses you, I want you to show it. Are you ready for that? One, two, Go. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as much as you have loved me. Oh, glory to God. He says, by my sacrifice, the world will know. (laughs) I mean, at first, it doesn't make sense that God will let his son die. But then when you realize, He loves us as much as he loved him. Oh, my God. Then it begins to make sense. He did it for our sake. It was hard, but it was worth it. He has brought many sons to glory. Glory to his name. No wonder Paul says, by him we have access. Into this grace wherein we now stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He loves me as much as he loves Jesus. Oh my, what will a life be if you truly believe this? Is this true? God loves me as much as he loves Jesus. Oh my God. I'll I, I give you a minute to think about that. Oh my, I think it takes time for this to settle. But anyway, I said all of that to say this. Not every crime warrants a death sentence. Isn't that true? As bad as stealing is, you won't steal a chewing gum and be put in a firing squad, made to face a firing squad. That's just not how it works, right? So if God lets his son die, It means what you did was really bad. By the price that was paid, you can understand the gravity of the indebtedness that we were in. So I'm saying in the cross, you see the severity of God against sin, not just the love of God. And in fact, you know, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, oh my God, so many things I wish I could share with you, but for time's sake. You know, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, Jesus is speaking to one of the churches, and he commended them for, for hating the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which he also hated. And a lot of historians and theologians say that this doctrine came from a guy named Nicholas, who they say was part of the people that were ordained alongside Stephen and Philip. But he strayed into false teaching, teaching that because Christ had died for us, we can cast off virtuous restraints, sin and grace will abound. And Jesus says, I hate that doctrine. Because you see, by the price he paid, you can understand the severity of sin. You know what? I tell people this, never be entertained by the very sins that Christ died for. Never entertain it. There will be no revelation of grace that will bring you into a point of complacency with sin. In fact, the more you understand it, you will say, how can I, who have been brought out of sin, dead to sin, continue to live any longer daring? God forbid. I mean... The way, you know, back home we say, you you want to pretend like you don't remember that? (laughs) Ain't it? God forbid. Hallelujah. So, the gospel is a warning for many people to save themselves from the wrath to come. Listen, there is still hell. Hell is real. This is not a joke. And apart from the presence of God, there is great destruction and damnation. However, come on, are you with me? However, the same cross that shows the severity of God against sin shows that in his love and mercy, he allowed all the punishment that should be met on all of us to be put on one person. Come on, are you with me? And that's how you cannot preach the message of grace without implicitly exposing God's position against sin. It is lack of understanding to think that the teaching of grace is a license to sin. When the message tells you that someone died, are you getting this? When the message is telling you, God crushed his own son. That must be serious. How does that minimize sin? But the opposite can be the case. If God took on flesh, dwelt amongst us, lived 33 and a half years, died a miserable death, And people who believe in him, moments before they die, can tell one lie and that alters their eternal security. That's bad investment. You you let your son die for that? Do you understand what I'm saying? If you're going to invest so much, In return cannot be so fragile that your son hung on a cross, and then people who I'm not talking about people who are looking for an excuse to sin, I mean, people who believe in Jesus, actively following him, you know, but in a moment of vulnerability, you know, there's a slip or a fault, or you know, the sin. And then it's all over. That has to be taught in economics class as the worst investment ever. Do you understand what I'm saying? But it's not. Because the Bible says, where sin doth abound, grace, much more. Abounds, come on. Do you believe that? Yeah. We're seeing abounds. Grace, much more abounds. Uh, listen, and don't go straw man. You know, some people always look. To, what is straw man argument? Looking for the worst-case scenario of an argument so that it is easy to debunk it. And say, What about people who use grace as an excuse and are going on unrestrained? Sinning. Those people are wrong. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is this. Where sin did abound, grace much more abound. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. So when they say don't believe to sin, I say don't believe to the sacrifice. He shed his blood. You think that's a joke? You think that you can tell me that the incarnate son of God died for me. And I still have no assurance of eternal life. It's not possible. It's not possible. It's not possible. His death counts for something. His death counts in my life. Oh, I believe, I believe, I believe. For God loved the world this way. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I believe. Therefore, I have eternal life. Listen, I am not waiting to see God to know if I have it or not. Now are we the sons of God. I have assurance now by faith in his name. He says, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I believe. Therefore, I have eternal life. Thank you, Jesus. I give you 20 seconds. Thank Thank him right now. 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 Hallelujah. In Jesus' mighty name, thank you, Lord. All right, so I'm going to cut this short for time's sake. I'm going to try to speed up. If I was going to title to the sermon, I would call it Try or Trust. Try or Trust. And what I'm trying to say is this. As it pertains to salvation, you either trust the provision of the sacrifice of Christ or you try with your works. Because the Bible tells us that there are two types of righteousness. And Paul speaks about it in Romans chapter 10. He says, the righteousness that is of works. You know what, let's read it. Romans chapter 10. Verse 5, it says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, that the man who does those things shall live by them. So listen, this is the order. You want eternal life? Tick all these boxes. Come on, are you with me? So that is the righteousness of works of the law. So, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And then you envisage that you get a heaven, and then the angel looks at your score and says, okay, you tried. enter. There's only one problem. God's righteous verdict concerning that is this. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that does good. So, in the history of humanity... No one has ever been declared righteous by fulfilling the law. Not one person. It says, even your righteousness is as a filthy rag. So good luck thinking you'll be the first. So the righteousness of the law says, do to have eternal life. But then there's righteousness of faith. And it goes thus the just shall live by faith. Meaning, what is going to give you access to eternal life is faith. That all you have to do is believe. And this is what Paul was trying to teach in Romans chapter 10. The righteousness of the law says that those who do these things shall by it live. But the righteousness which is of faith says, don't say in your heart who shall ascend to the heaven that is to bring Christ down again, or who shall ascend, descend into the deep. That is to bring him up again. Meaning, it is not preoccupied with what you can do and what you can contribute. It says, "What saith it?" It says, "The word." Oh my God! So, meaning, the righteousness of the law is thinking about works, but the righteousness of faith is the word. Come on, are you with me? It's just, it's, it's just some words you can order. Nigh thee, even in your mouth and in your heart. The word of faith which we preach that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Do you believe the word of God? God? And that's why heaven will be full of surprises. Paul said. Quoting prophetically, God's ordinances, God said, I was found by those who were not seeking me. It's amazing that the Jews and the, you know, the Jews that were trying by the law did not find God. They were seeking God, they didn't find him. But then the people who were just going on their own heard the message, received it, and they found God. I was found by those who were not seeking me. Don't be ignorant of God's righteousness. Don't seek your own righteousness. Believe in the righteousness of God. Believe in His Christ. And you see, I started with the text, you know, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. I want us to go back there again. What the prophet said, and then we're going to look into some Old Testament texts and thank God. And we'll be out of here. First Peter... Chapter 1, verse 10. <laughs> First, Peter, chapter 1, <laughs> verse 10. It says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that you'd follow. Can you say the sufferings of Christ Christ. And and the glory that should follow? Oh, my God. So, you see, I mean, Jesus used a very brilliant analogy to explain this. He used horticulture or agriculture, whichever one you choose. He says, except a corn of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. He says, but if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. So, the same way with agriculture, life is an evidence of death that every time you see a plant alive, it is proof that a seed died. And so he's saying, the same thing applies to the kingdom, that for life to emerge, he's going to have to die. If I be lifted up, he was not talking about praising, him, lift Jesus higher. He said, if I, (laughs) he was talking about being lifted on the cross. Come on, are you with me? So by my death, I will draw all men unto me the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. That by his suffering he will bring many sons to glory. Come on. Say thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. What does the Bible say about this? Isaiah, who I consider the best preacher in the Old Testament, the Paul of the Old Testament, he did a brilliant prophetic expose on this. In Isaiah chapter 53, he was talking about the sufferings of Christ. He prophesied ahead of time the sufferings of Christ. And in Isaiah chapter 54, the glory that should follow. And I just want us to do a scanty commentary on those two. The reason this is important is because, you know, one young man came to the church in Abuja years ago. The church was just old. And he was practicing Judaism. If you are a pastor in this generation, read redo, <laughs> because people do, you know. Strange, Judaism. <laughs> I'm still in shock. So, you know, he sent me a message afterwards, you know, just being argumentative. And then he said, I don't believe the New Testament. I don't believe Amen, of course. If you are practicing Judaism, you will hold on to the Torah. The Neviim and the Tekoim, Abi. I said, okay, I will preach Jesus only from the Old Testament. Is that okay? And by the time I had taken him through about 15 scriptures. And I said, uh... <laughs> Hallelujah. Look at Isaiah chapter 53 very quickly. It says, Who has believed our report? You see, this exact text was quoted in Romans chapter 10 in reference to the gospel. So the same way the gospel is called evangelion, meaning news, reports. So this is an allusion to the gospel. Who has believed our report? He's telling you that the gospel's message will be so good that it will be hard to believe. Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of God revealed? The arm of God was a popular metaphor of the salvation of God. Come on, are you with me? Like, so who understands what God has done about salvation and who's going to believe it? He says, for he shall grow up before him a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground, he had no form, no commonness. This was a prophecy of the incarnation and the kind of life he was going to have. It says there was no form or beauty that we should desire him. Jesus had no natural advantages. He wasn't born to a rich home. He didn't have any physique that the moment you saw him, you would notice the Son of God. You only had to know by faith. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, there was nothing about his... The Bible... Said nothing about the physical attributes of Jesus because there was nothing to be said. Nothing special about the color of his eyes or his nose, that you just see how pointed the nose is. And I say, He knows it all. He knows it all. You know, you know He knows tomorrow. <laughs> you could only tell by faith. Come on, are you listening to me? It says there was no form, no comeliness. Some theologians believe that this was also an allusion to how beaten he was before he was put on the cross, that you could literally not recognize him anymore. No beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing physical that could attract. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's the son of a carpenter. He's despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. But surely, oh my God. Oh my God. I mean, that word surely is disruptive. It means it doesn't matter the reputation he has in the world. It doesn't matter what people believe. It doesn't matter that, I mean, in some places, they say we don't believe in Jesus. But surely, this is, this is still the mind of God on this. Surely he has borne our griefs. Those who don't believe it will believe it soon. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrow. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. You see, in those days... They had this superstition that if you are going through a lot of misfortunes, it is because God is against you and God is punishing you for your sins. A simple example when the serpent fastened itself around the hand of Paul, they said, uh, God is punishing him for his sins. And some people still have that superstition today. That's why they came to Job and said, Confess, you have done something. So, I mean, why is he on the cross? God must be punishing him. It says, we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But the next verse says, but, oh my God. So, we thought he was dying for his sins. In fact, if you check the political records, Jesus died as a criminal. Are you getting what I'm saying? He was literally crucified with sinners. We esteemed him... Smitten by God, but he was wounded for our transgressions. It was not for himself, it was for us. He was a spotless lamb. He was at all points tempted yet without sin. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Come on, are you with me? Jesus. This is why I'm saying Isaiah was so deep. What you just read here. Is Ephesians 1:17. It says that you may know the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, the exceeding greatness of his power, us who believe. That so Paul was teaching that what God did in Christ, he did in you. That the death of Christ was your death, the burial of Christ was your so for, for Isaiah to say by his stripes. Are you getting what I'm saying? That by the misfortune of this man we get a healing. That's Pauline theology. By his stripes I'm healed. <laughs> That's so powerful. The sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Let's move on. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him The iniquity of us all. Oh my God. I want to preach that to you in case you've forgotten. Jesus died for all your sins. He said you went astray, but God laid on him your iniquity. Do you believe that today? God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He could have defended himself. Pontius Pilate was looking for a... He knew he was innocent. But I can't let you go if if you don't help me. Give me something. Just talk. And he was silent. He opened not his mouth. Come on, are you with me? He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By the way, this was what the Ethiopian eunuch was reading, and he asked Philip, who is he talking about, of himself or someone else? And then Philip began to preach unto him, the Christ, all right? So this was clearly talking about Jesus, you can tell from Philip's interpretation. All right, verse 10, everybody read verse 10 together, one to go. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When he make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper. So this was a prophecy of the resurrection and not just his resurrection. Now, when you talk about someone who just died, saying he shall see his seed, death is meant to be be able to cut you from seeing your children. Are you getting what I'm saying? But he's saying, this same man who was bruised and was put to grief and was made an offering for sin will see his seed. So on one hand, he's telling you that he's going to rise. But then he's, going to, he's telling you also that his sacrifice will produce children. Amen. Glory to God. Amen. He shall see his seed and that sacrifice will prolong his days. Oh, this is good preaching. Isaiah, they preach. <laughs> oh, my God. The next verse, verse 11. He shall see the travail, not labor. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Oh, my God. This is why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. The demands of justice had been met. Meaning, what his suffering on the cross was sufficient. So, God judged that what Christ did was enough. He shall see the travel of his soul and be satisfied. The demands of justice have been met forever. Do you believe that? Can you thank God for that? Glory to God. He shall see the travel of his soul and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Listen. Isaiah knew something about justification that some people still don't know today. Isaiah knew that justification will one day come by knowledge. Not by works. Not by efforts. He says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Why? For he shall bear their iniquities. That's good preaching right there, right? And now... To the glory that should follow, very quickly, there's a lot more I can say about all of this. Isaiah chapter 54, the next chapter, verse 1. I like how he starts. He says, sing! Oh my God. The response, our understanding of the gospel is singing. Zephaniah 3.17 says the same thing. It says, the Lord, your God, in the midst of thee is mighty, mighty to save. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee singing. Meaning, Christ has finished his walk over you, and he's singing about you. And when you hear the song of God, you should sing along. You sing his song, because he sang that we may boldly sing. He said that we may boldly sing. And he says, sing! Go back Isaiah 54 verse 1 very quickly single barren you who have not born break forth into singing and cry aloud you who have not labored with child for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman oh my god time i don't know if i have enough time you know what if i stop here that's okay all right you see how they are giving me grace <laughs> Oh, Jesus. Now, this text was quoted in Galatians 3. I'm giving you a few seconds. Bible sword. Competition. Find out where. Was it Galatians 3 or Galatians 4? Bible sword. Galatians 4.27. Put it up, media team, quickly. Have you found it now? Yes. Galatians 4:27 Now let's read from verse 21 so that you understand. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, the other by the free. It says, but he who was of the bondwoman was according to the flesh, and he of the free woman was through promise. Oh my God. Come. 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 Listen. This is going to change your life. Listen to this. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One of the many things they had in common, you probably never noticed. All their wives were barren. Think about it. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, all barren. All of them received children by miracles. And so God was showing the children of Israel that this lineage you are clinging to and having superiority complex came by faith. That even biologically, you could not be a son of Abraham if Abraham did not believe. That's so powerful. Like, except for the intervention of God, Abraham will never have children. So that was the mentality he was trying to instill in them. You are not a child of Abraham except you believe. You're not a child of Abraham. So all of them had that, that in common. And then now he gives the example of Abraham. Abraham went on. Impatient about God's promise, he went on to have Ishmael. So that one was a child of works. So the Bible tells you that Ishmael represented righteousness by works. But because Isaac came only by God fulfilling his promise, Isaac represents grace. And he says these two are an allegory. Come on, are you with me? Oh, Jesus. And then he says in Isaiah chapter 54, Sing, O barren. So he's telling you that the man in Christ Jesus will only be produced by God fulfilling his promise. Meaning in salvation, it is God who does the work. Come on, are you with me? God who does the work. Abraham couldn't have children. He could not. He was old. Sarah was old. And God did so. so. he's telling you that in salvation, God takes the initiative. God does the work. And you say thank you. And all of this, the Bible says is an allegory. I'm not trying to preach remark. The Bible actually does call it an allegory of works and of law. And now pay attention to this. Israel was called the bride of God. Hmm? Please follow me so you don't miss this. And the Gentiles were disenfranchised because salvation is of the Jews, right? But now he says, more are the children of the desolates than the children of the married wife. So God prophesied that there will be many amongst the Gentiles. He prophesied that many people in Birmingham will believe, not just Jews. And so because of that, oh my God. He says, for you shall expand to the right and to the left. So now, we need more space. This house needs more space. Once upon a time, it was just the Jews. But don't you see Nigerians coming? Don't you see Ghanaians coming? Don't you see Cameroonians coming? Don't you see... In it coming. They're all coming. He says, Make more room. He says, Expand to the right and to the left. He says, And your descendants shall inherit the nations and make desolate cities to be inhabited. God's prophecy was that the man in Christ, the men in Christ will be many. Listen, God never planned for few believers. I'm going to pick on this point when we're, plan- we're talking about evangelism, you know, in this co- conference. God never planned for few. He told Abraham, look at the stars. God's picture of the church is innumerable stars. And children like the sand of the seashore will we'll be many. We are many. We are many. We are many. Glory to God. Thank you very much. And he is not done yet. Look at verse 4. He says, "Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be. Uh, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and will remember not the reproach of your widowhood." All right, let's wrap this up, and I want to make sure. Hey, my God, Jesus, this is so powerful. Look at verse five. Now he's. T- oh my God, you have to understand. You won't really appreciate this except you are familiar with Old Testament ideologies, especially as it pertains to the seeming favoritism that the Jews had in the presence of God. He says, if you keep my law, I will make you a kingdom of priests above all the nations of the earth, for all the earth is mine. So they had a superiority complex because the promise was, as they tried to keep the law, they'll be above all the nations of the earth. The message to Pharaoh was, Israel is my firstborn. If you don't let my firstborn go, your firstborns will go. So, it, I mean, it, it, they, they were special like that. Israel was the bride of God. But now, God is talking to Gentile nations. And he says, for your maker is your husband. Come on, are you with me? Oh, meaning you have been brought into the commonwealth of Israel. Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, You have that relationship and even richer by faith. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth, not just of Israel. Do you believe that? The God of the whole earth. He says, for the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit. Like a youthful wife, when you were refused, says the Lord. Verse 7. For a mere moment I have forsaken you. But with great kindness, with great mercy, will I gather you. Listen, say with me, the mercy of God over my life is great. Mercy of God over my life is great. Say it again, the mercy of God over my life is great. The mercy of God over my life is great. It says, with a little wrath. I have hid my face from you a moment, but with what? Oh my God. You know, some people think you're the God of a second chance. If it's the God of a second chance, we're all in trouble. Don't flatter yourself. Two chances, you exhausted it before you were three. Hallelujah. I'm glad he's not a God of just two chances. He says with everlasting kindness. Everlasting kindness. Everlasting kindness. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying here. I I don't know if you've experienced anything remotely close to what he's talking about here. Have you experienced the everlasting kindness of God? That if he was a man, you know that he should have given up on you. He was just a mere man. And God's capacity to take the people that men have rejected and make something great out of them. With everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord. He says, with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Stand to your feet, hold your Bibles in your hands. As we read verse 9. Thank you, Jesus. He says, for this is like, oh my God, thank you, Lord. Everybody read verse 9 together, with me. want to go. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah will no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn not to be angry with you. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. God. Listen, you have to understand, God is not a boss. He's a father. When you make a mistake at the office, the boss lays you off because he's not committed to your growth. I mean, he's not... He's not your your trainer. Fundamentally, he employed you for profits. But even a person who is sacked returns back home to the parents. Do you understand what I'm saying? God is on your side. All your excesses, the things you need to work on, he's going to work with you. Listen, his grace is stronger. He will defeat all the habits. He won't excuse them, he will defeat them. He's powerful enough for that. He will correct. His arms are always open to the prodigal son. Always open. You messed up quite all right, but you have a father waiting. He says, For this shall be as the waters of Noah. You see, God has promised not to destroy the world by water again, no matter how bad things get for his namesake it is no longer about how men act do you understand what I'm saying for his namesake he has promised and he says these shall be as the waters of Noah he says the same way I vowed that waters will no longer cover the earth I have vowed Come on, are you with me my anger will only be for a moment listen I will not be angry with you or rebuke you I will not throw you away You will always be my son, my daughter, and I'll be urging you hey, you can do better, son. I'm your trainer, I'm on your side. That's my God. God is not angry with me. He's not angry with me. He's on my side. He's on my side. And even when He chastises me, it's because He loves me. He knows I can do better. He sees a potential in me that no one else sees. God is on my side. Hey, he said, this is what your Redeemer says. Your, your husband, your husband, he can be trusted. He can be trusted. He crushed his son for your sake. Rest in his love. Just thank him for his love. Thank him for his love. Thank him for the blood that he shed. Thank him for his sacrifice. Thank Him. Thank Him for His blood! Thank you for listening.